basically I'm saying that that old dichotomy between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith can be laid aside. If you could get back to a Jesus who was, as it were, uninterpreted, in the first case, I think such a Jesus would be not very interesting. But actually, when people write their accounts of the historical Jesus, they are interpreting Jesus. And what we're really getting, instead of Jesus according to Mark, or Jesus according to John, or Jesus according to Luke, we are getting Jesus according to Dominic Crossan, or Jesus according to um, Art Ehrman. Therefore, I'm suggesting that the Jesus of testimony is the Jesus the historical evidence that we have gives us, that is, the Jesus the four Gospels gives us. And that Jesus is, is the Jesus in whom the church has believed. I'm Philip Zoutendam, and you're listening to The Erdcast, an Erdman's podcast about books and the people who make them. Today on the podcast, Richard Bauckham, author of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, when it was first published a decade ago, shook up the field of gospel studies. In a way, that's what Richard Bauckham intended. The book was meant to provoke a paradigm shift, he says, a shift away from form criticism, which sees the gospels as strands of oral tradition woven together and adapted by various communities, and toward an understanding of the gospels as eyewitness testimony compiled and organized by particular authors who had access to living memory of the events. Richard Bauckham is Professor Emeritus of New Testament Studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and Senior Scholar at Ridley Hall, Cambridge. His book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which won the Michael Ramsey Prize and numerous other awards, is now out in a second edition. Richard Bauckham, welcome to the Erdcast. Thanks so much for joining us to talk uh, about the second edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Thank you. Hello. I usually begin the interviews by asking authors to describe or distill their book uh, in a single sentence. How would you do this for Jesus and the Eyewitnesses and maybe specifically the second edition? Okay. 650 pages in one sentence is a, it's a tall order. <laughs> um, Basically, the book argues that the Gospels in our New Testament are closely based on the eyewitness testimony of people who knew Jesus. What I could say about the second edition is that it argues the same thesis, um, but it responds to some criticism and discussion of the first edition, and it takes some of the arguments a bit further on. What first uh, interested you in writing about this topic? What concerns or questions uh, prompted the, the first edition? It, it may be worth saying that when I wrote this book, the first edition I wrote um, in 2005, um, it was definitely a book I could not have written earlier in my career because all sorts of different things came together as I was writing it that I had done some work on. So I suppose there was more than one starting point for the book, but the obvious starting point for the book um, was the observation that personal names in the Gospels 
are more significant than people have usually thought. And in some cases, I wanted to argue, the personal names are a way of the author indicating his eyewitness source at that point in his writing. Um, so I had already developed that a little bit in an article or two. Um, I was also interested in the work of Papias, uh, who is the first early Christian writer outside the New Testament who tells us anything about the origins of the Gospels. Um, and I think there's some very interesting things in Papias which have really not been quite appreciated sufficiently. Um, so those two things came together. I'd also done some work on the origins of the Gospel of John, um, and that fed into the book as well. I, when I started out on the book, I actually expected to write a quite short book. I thought I was going to write a book that was not particularly definitive, but would explore a few questions and, and throw out some ideas. Um, and the book, as it were, grew organically as I worked on it. So the argument um, led me on, and I sort of followed the arguments where they led me. Um, so that ended up encompassing a lot of things that I hadn't thought I was going to look at, like, for example, the psychology of eyewitness testimony, or like contemporary study of oral tradition. Um, these things um, came along the way as I wrote the book and integrated themselves into the argument. Um, and the other thing that happened, uh, I think, um, was that I became convinced that form criticism, which is the approach to the origins of the Gospels that has dominated Gospel scholarship for a century, I came to the conclusion that form criticism was more or less completely wrong, and we needed to make a fresh start in gospel scholarship. When I started on the book, I thought I thought I would probably say about form criticism, the kind of thing one usually says if one assesses, you know, a particular movement in scholarship. And you, I might say, you know, well, it got some things right, but it also made these mistakes. Um, but in the course of working on it, I began to conclude that really form criticism got everything wrong and we needed to uh, just break free from that particular model of uh, how the Gospels came into being. You make a, a bold claim, um, especially in the second edition, that form criticism is dead. And uh, I'd love to get back to that um, a little bit later in the interview. I wonder if, if in your own um, personal understanding of the Gospels, did you always um, imagine them or study them as eyewitness uh, accounts? Did your understanding kind of go through any permutations along the way? Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have to go back very far in my career before I wrote the book um, to a time when I, I suppose I accepted the picture painted by form criticism in a fairly moderate way. Um, as, as, as many gospel scholars have done. Um, basically, you can read the picture that the form critics um, provided, you can read it in a rather skeptical way, as though uh, it must mean that hardly anything in the gospels is really at all reliable historically, but you can also read it in a more conservative way and suppose that the oral traditions were preserved fairly faithfully. And I suppose I would have gone along with that model. Um, the role of the eyewitnesses is something that simply at a certain point struck me. Um, 
And I began to think that the film critics really hadn't done justice to the role that the eyewitnesses must have played uh, in the in the gospel tradition. Um, and everything else followed from that. And uh, no, it, it's mostly an argument that I could not have uh, pursued, as I said earlier in my career. The other thing about it, of course, is that it was um, really a, 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 an argument for a paradigm shift in gospel scholarship. Um, and that's not the sort of thing that one ought to do early in one's career. Uh, you need to do it. You need to do it when you've got some confidence, and you need to do it when you've got some well-based confidence um, in terms of having a lot of experience and having worked on this material in all kinds of ways, and, and now being in a position to sit back and do something fresh. Could you outline uh, some of the contentions of form criticism that you are? Uh, out to refute in this book? Basically, the Ford critics who were working about a century ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Rudolf Bortmann is the best known of them. Um, basically, what they were doing, um, they were taking the discussion of gospel origins back from the point where previous scholars had been interested in the written sources of the gospels. The Ford critics wanted to go back to the oral tradition uh, which they assumed would have been the original form of the gospel traditions before anything was written down. Um, and they they took a model of oral tradition, uh, which was probably the best available in their time, but not very suitable. Um, and they argued that the gospel traditions must have been passed on over a long period, um, several decades at least, as anonymous traditions. In other words, nobody would have said this particular saying of Jesus was transmitted by Peter or, or, or this story comes to us from Bartimaeus. Um, the traditions were anonymous and, the, and they were also uh, individual bits of tradition. So they would be just one episode in Jesus' story, a, a miracle story, for example, or they would be just one saying of Jesus. Um, passed down as those units of tradition um, in the early Christian communities, um, and really they were owned by the communities rather than by any source that they may have come from. Um, and they, they also thought that the, um, the communities were quite creative in how they handled the traditions, because they weren't really interested in history. They were, they were interested in the relevance of Jesus um, to the needs of their own community. So they adapted the stories and sayings of Jesus to, to focus on uh, the needs of their community. Um, and that was the form in which the evangelists knew the traditions, the, the traditions about Jesus. They may have been started off by the eyewitnesses, the Early uh, form critics didn't deny that some of the gospel stories would first have been told by eyewitnesses. But then they had this long um, period of being passed from mouth to mouth to ear to mouth to ear, um, uh, in which anything could have happened to them, really. Um, uh, and it was in that form that they reached the gospel writers. And they also proposed certain kind of laws of oral tradition, so that they thought that from the tradition as we have it, shall we say, in Mark's gospel, you could work back to what the original form of the tradition would be. Um, and it would usually be different, significantly different from the, from the form we have 
Um, so that, that's a kind of package of ideas um, that they presented. And that picture really has dominated gospel scholarship ever since. Um, there have, of course, been other uh, approaches to study of gospel, to the gospels, um, redaction criticism, literary criticism, social scientific criticism. But all of those uh, movements, if you like, in gospel scholarship um, were, were, were based on form criticism. They took form criticism for granted and then said, well, that's how it happened. Now, what else can we say about this and that? Um, so the redaction critics, you know, they focused entirely on what the evangelists were doing with this oral tradition that they received. Um, but they took for granted that that was the form in which the traditions came to the evangelists. Before we get to your responses um, to form criticism, I'd like to know what you would say the stakes are in this debate. If form criticism is correct or incorrect, if your book's thesis is correct or incorrect, what are the repercussions of that? Basically, it's about what sort of historical documents the Gospels are. Can we have access to the real Jesus? in these texts that the church has been reading for 2000 years as though they do give us access to the real Jesus. There have of course been in the wake of form criticism, even before form criticism, there has been attempt after attempt, um, innumerable attempts to get back behind our gospels to a so-called Jesus of history, Jesus as he really was. The form critics made that much more difficult than it had previously been because of this idea that gospel traditions uh, were transmitted only as individual units of, of tradition um, anonymously. And even if you said that the communities transmitted the traditions fairly conservatively, um, nevertheless, the only way to know what's authentic in this traditional material is to assess each unit individually by itself. So you have to look at this story of Jesus healing someone. Does this story stand up to tests of authenticity? Um, and that's the basic method that has been pursued um, for a century or so. Now, one of the results of that is I think fairly clear, that is the method doesn't work because using that method, people have come up with any number of different understandings of who the historical Jesus was. Um, you know, you could write, Albert Schweitzer at the beginning of the 20th century wrote a big book about the various versions of the Jesus of history um, that had preceded him in the 19th century quest of the historical Jesus. You could write several volumes about um, those that have come along um, since form critics. The form critics themselves, you see, were really very skeptical about whether we could know much at all about Jesus. Um, but, but because people really aren't content with not knowing much at all about Jesus, um, there was attempt after attempt to, as it were, get through this obstacle that the form critics had given us, um, this period of fluid oral tradition. Um, and the thing about it, you see, is that normally in historical work, um, you have to assess your sources, but you're assessing um, 
you're assessing a, a source document, for example, if we're talking in literary terms, um, you're assessing Plutarch's life of Julius Caesar. And you look at whether there are reasons to, to be confident that this writer's work is generally reliable. The form critics stopped us doing that because they said we've got to assess these individual units of tradition. Um, and the fact is, I think, that we don't have the means of assessing such material. Um, so I think um, the question whether we can know anything much about Jesus at all uh, depends on reassessing the Gospels as historical documents. And what I'm saying is that we should approach the Gospels in something much more like the ordinary way in which historians approach documentary evidence. That is, we, we can take Mark's Gospel and we can think about reasons why um, this document as a general source um, for knowledge about Jesus um, is reliable or unreliable. Um, but we're trying to assess the reliability of a, of a whole source. And then if we do decide that this is a reliable source, we have to go ahead and trust the source. That's what we generally do um, with historical sources. We can't verify everything um, some, some, some writer in history says. We can give reasons for confidence um, that they're a reliable witness, and then we just have to trust them. Part of your argument is uh, historiographic, and you have a section where you talk about the need to trust and how that is a fundamental part of, of, of any kind of knowledge and, and also specifically of historical knowledge. Could you elaborate on that a little bit and say what place trust has in history in general and, and as related to the Gospels specifically? I'm glad you asked that because people have misunderstood that. And it's one of the things I um, come back to in, in the last chapter of the new edition. I always said that um, testimony asks to be trusted, but not that we should trust it uncritically. And one can start from the way that we trust testimony all the time in our daily lives. It, it's a basic way of, not, of knowing things. Somebody tells us something, and if we've no reason to think that they're unreliable, we believe what they say. But that doesn't mean that we're uncritical, because uh, if we're an intelligent person, um, you know, we are, we are alert to the possibility that they may be telling lies or they, they're deceived or all kinds of reasons for not trusting them. But the point is, unless we have serious reasons for distrusting testimony, we do, in the normal course of events, trust it. A huge amount of what we think we know is based on trusting testimony. Um, it's the same with historians. Um, I think in, in many ways, um, historical work is the sort of intelligent common sense that, that people exercise um, in their daily lives. Um, it's also, of course, based upon um, expert knowledge um, of the period in which the testimony that we're assessing uh, takes place. Um, uh, so there are, there are things about, um, about the period that make a difference. Um, but, but basically it is um, a, assessing a whole text, 
trusting it if there seemed to be uh, no serious grounds for... Um, now, if you knew, for example, that your text was written 600 years after the events on which it's based, that would be good grounds for not trusting it. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily write it off. You'd start thinking, well, what were its sources? What might have um, survived over 600 years that had been preserved by this later top text um, and not otherwise? Um, so it's always possible that even a, an unpromising text of that sort might contain um, uh, good evidence. But in a sense, there um, the burden is on uh, the person who wants to um, argue that there is good material in it, prima facie, one would not give it very much credence. Um, but in a text like the Gospels, which was written within living memory of the events, I think that's very important. They're texts written within living memory of the events. So I think we should um, approach them much as we might approach some of the uh, biographies that we have from Greek and Latin writers who were living within living memory, or actually we don't have too many from within living memory, but, but not too long afterwards. Um, and it's interesting, I think, to look at how ancient historians um, assessed their sources and what they required of their sources, um, because ancient historians were very reliant on on testimony, on what people told them. Um, modern historians have all kinds of archival material, they have archaeology, they have all kinds of other stuff. But ancient historians, so they did have some archives and so forth, uh, they were heavily reliant on reports. Um, and therefore, they, played, paid, they placed a great deal of emphasis on eyewitness evidence, particularly from eyewitnesses who were involved in the events that they are describing. Um, someone who was in the, uh, in, in the thick of a battle, or someone who was there when the general was uh, planning his line of attack. That sort of uh, involvement from people who were in a position to really know what happened. That was the kind of thing that ancient historians uh, valued above. And therefore, they, they, they actually didn't think you could do very well writing history that was not within living memory. You had to write it within, when that sort of testimony was still available. So if I can ask a question about, uh, about personal involvement, it seems maybe even commonplace to understand personal involvement today as, as a kind of bias or something to be suspicious of. You have a section um, where, where you actually make a case that personal involvement, especially in particular kinds of events, offers basically incomparable insight. Yes, I, I think in some ways we've become too suspicious of subjectivity, really. Um, and it's partly, I think, the application of a sort of natural sciences model of objectivity. Um, but uh, with the example I use in, in the last chapter of the first edition um, is the example of testimony to the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Um, it's very interesting because most of what we know about, about what went a, a, actually went on 
um, in the Holocaust comes from the testimony of survivors. Um, and there was a period almost past now um, where people were deliberately collecting the testimony of survivors while there were still some alive. Um, that, I think, is somewhat comparable, actually, to the point where the Gospels were written, um, the sense of a need now to get it down on paper while people are still around. Um, but the thing about the Holocaust, you know, what would we know about it if we merely had the sort of government records of Nazi Germany or something like that? The most it would give us was sort of some, some figures and some, you know, some, uh, so, some, some factual information. It would not really tell us what it was like in the in the death camps it would not really tell us what really went on in the death camps um you need people who are actually there um and deeply involved in in that case and those people of course don't emerge as unbiased objective reporters um they're people who've been deeply affected by what happened to them and in some cases they're people who who felt, as it were, um, almost a vocation to tell people about it so that it should not happen again and, and so forth. Uh, some people, of course, were very reluctant to talk about it and hardly ever did. But there were those whose experience, as it were, impelled them to try to describe it uh, and put it across to people who um, would have difficulty imagining what it was like unless they could tell them about it. So I think testimonies often like that, testimony to important events uh, which really affect the people who go through those events. Um, what they tell us is not only what happened in some barely factual way, but what it meant to them, what it did to them. If you want to understand an event like that, you want to understand how it affected people. You're listening to The Erdcast. My conversation with Richard Bauckham about Jesus and the eyewitnesses continues in a moment. For the next two weeks, you can order the new second edition of the book at 30% off. Follow the link in the episode notes and use the code TESTIMONY. At this point, I... I'd like to ask you to work through uh, a couple of of key pieces of evidence um, that you've laid out in the book. And obviously, you don't have to go through them detail by detail. But what would you say are some of the most uh, important or some of the weightiest uh, pieces of evidence that, that emerged for you? Maybe it'd be a good idea if I focus on the Gospel of Mark. Why do I think Mark's Gospel is reliable? We could start with Going back to Papias, um, early Christian writer, right at the beginning of the second century, um, who famously says that Mark's gospel um, was written by Mark, who worked as Peter's translator and heard Peter's teaching, um, Peter's uh, accounts of the gospel traditions um, and wrote them down. Before the form critics, most gospel scholars took that evidence of Papias very seriously. The form critics dismissed it, and it has been widely dismissed ever since. 
simply because it doesn't fit the form critical model. And unless we start by presupposing the form critical view, there seems no good reason for simply dismissing APS. But then we have to ask, well, does the Gospel of Mark look as though it gives us Peter's account? The argument hangs on the idea that names in the historical narrative um, can, in certain circumstances, function as indications of an eyewitness source. Apart from Jesus himself, Peter is the individual who is most often named in the gospel by quite a considerable margin. Um, and moreover, Peter is named rather emphatically when he first appears in the gospel, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, and he's named right at the end of the gospel um, in the angel's message to the women. So it's as though we've got a narrative that, that is enclosed by references to Peter, and Peter is named frequently within the narrative. There's an interesting um, phrase that we find both in uh, Luke's gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles, and actually in John's gospel, which talks about people being eyewitnesses from the beginning. And the idea is that the best sort of eyewitness was someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry right through to the end. So if we look for someone in, uh, in Mark's gospel who fulfills that condition, uh, Peter rather obviously does, except that there is a section of the gospel where Peter falls out of view. Um, Peter famously denied Jesus um, at the time of Jesus' trial, and he doesn't appear again in Mark's narrative. He's named right at the end, but he himself doesn't appear again in Mark's narrative. And these are some of the most important events for Mark, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, the empty tomb. So what does Mark do? He makes it very clear to us that he has other eyewitnesses that fill the gap that uh, Peter is not available for. And those are the women disciples. Mark doesn't mention the women disciples at all until he gets to the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And then he, he refers to them three times. He refers to them at the cross when Jesus dies. He refers to them at the burial where Jesus is laid in the tomb. And he refers to them going to the empty tomb on, uh, on Easter morning and encountering the angel. Virtually everything Mark says about these women is that they saw and they observed and they looked. They don't really do anything much except look and see. Um, so I think he's labeling them quite clearly as eyewitnesses. People have asked me, um, well, why doesn't Mark just say that Peter is his eyewitness? And the answer, I think, lies in a matter of literary genre. Um, this is a narrative genre. And people like the writer of Mark's gospel don't like interrupting their narrative to give you bits of information in which, as it were, the author becomes prominent, saying something to the, to the readers. You don't want to be reading a story about the trial of Jesus or something and Mark sort of saying, you know, this is how I know this and these are my sources. And remember, most people would have heard these narratives read. They didn't sit down in an armchair to read them for themselves. They heard them read. So the, the flow of the narrative, the um, impression the story makes um, is really rather important to how the how the how the texts function. There's also some content in your book about uh, other reasons why certain eyewitnesses would not be named, for instance, for their own safety. Very interesting case of this. 
is Mark's story of the woman who anoints Jesus um, at the beginning of the last week of his life before the crucifixion. The woman is anonymous. Now, in itself, that's not very surprising because lots of these minor characters in the Gospels are anonymous. People who only appear in one episode really tend to be anonymous, and the evangelists may not have known their names. Um, but in this case, the woman who anoints Jesus, um, Jesus praises her act. She, she's, she, she really understands him. And he says, wherever the gospel is told, um, this woman will be remembered for what she has done. And yet she doesn't have a name. I mean, that, that is really rather, rather odd. In John's gospel, she gets a name. She's Mary of Bethany. Um, but why is she not named in Mark? And Matthew follows Mark in terms of that narrative. Matthew doesn't have her name. Um, and the suggestion along these lines that was made by um, uh, another scholar uh, extended his ideas a bit more, um, is that when these traditions were first put together um, by the disciples in the early Jerusalem church, um, it was dangerous to have been the woman who anointed Jesus, who proclaimed him to be the Messiah. Jesus, of course, was, 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 was put to death um, for behaving seditiously. Um, it was a political charge as well as a religious one. Um, and people who, were ad who could be seen to have, as it were, aided and abetted him, his supporters. Um, it could have been quite dangerous in Jerusalem, um, where, of course, most of the high priests in the period after Jesus um, were related to Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests who were involved in the death of Jesus. So it was a dangerous situation, and they didn't want to expose these people to danger um, by naming them. It works very well, I think, for Mary of Bethany, again, is named in John, um, for the young man in Mark who flees, leaving his clothes behind in the garden, um, uh, and I think it works very well for the story of the raising of Lazarus in John's Gospel. Uh, it's a real uh, point at which people question whether John's Gospel can be believed, because if something as, as stupendous as bringing Lazarus back to life, um, and John presents the raising of Lazarus as though it were, as it were, the trigger to the series of events that led to Jesus' death. If such an extraordinary event, which played such an important part in the story, um, uh, had really happened, why isn't it in the other Gospels? And I think the answer is, that again, that it would have been dangerous for Lazarus. And you couldn't really tell that story of an anonymous person, because everybody would recognise it as, as Lazarus. My argument is that John's Gospel, um, which, as it were, strikes out on its own, it's not following these traditions as they were formulated in Jerusalem. It's a kind of independent uh, source of um, uh, knowledge about the, the events. Um, John's Gospel, written outside the context of Jewish Palestine um, at a time when this was no longer an issue, um, is free to tell the story of Lazarus. He's free to name Mary of Bethany. He's free to tell us uh, the name of the high priest's servant whose ear was cut off in the in the garden and various other things like that. 
I wonder if you would be able to point to any particular piece of evidence or group of evidence and say, this was the thing that that kind of uh, convinced you that this this was indeed, you know, the truth or this was indeed the argument? Or is it more of a um, kind of a whole picture thing for you? It is a cumulative argument. And and I think I think people must read the book in that way. Um, and I'm certainly not pretending that all the arguments in the book are as strong as all the other arguments in any work of history. Um, you know, you produce some very strong arguments, you produce others that are uh, probable, or I mean, in a few cases I've just thrown out a suggestion, which may be right or may not be right, but I hope it's clear that I'm just throwing out a suggestion. There's no harm in doing that, I don't think. Um, but, but I do think people should read it as, as, as a cumulative argument. And that's the sense in which I'm attempting a paradigm shift over against form criticism, because the form critics, as it were, painted a whole picture of how the gospel traditions were transmitted and how, how they reached the evangelists. And a whole lot of people um, have made all sorts of good arguments against the form critics, um, but they haven't, as it were, put all those arguments together and then proposed an alternative. Um, so I think the persuasiveness of the book um, ought to depend on whether the overall picture that I paint of how the evangelists worked, where their gospel traditions came from, the sort of thing that was happening in the early church when gospel traditions were told and transmitted. Um, does that picture as a whole make sense? And I think this is a case where we do need a whole picture in order to assess it. We're able to look back, um, you know, more than a decade to the first edition now that the second edition is out. And, and I wonder how you would judge or characterize the effect of the first edition. Do you, do you think that you convinced your readers and maybe even critical readers that you know, this is a, a valid and coherent and even true argument? Well, you know, the, the reactions to the book ranged all the way from wild enthusiasm to some people who absolutely hate it. Um, and this didn't surprise me. Of course, it's a controversial book. And I think the point about proposing a paradigm shift is that paradigm shifts don't happen overnight. Um, and you don't really expect to convince many people who have worked all their life with the other paradigm. They work within um, this, this picture. It kind of makes sense because they've done all their arguing within that context. It's got to take a lot, a lot. To, now, I, I, it's been very nice that a few people actually have responded positively who are in that position. Um, uh, but, but I think on the whole, uh, one expects a paradigm shift to be more popular among younger scholars uh, who are more open to uh, rethinking things. And that, as far as I've been able to observe, um, is, is what has happened. One of the things about the book that actually has surprised me is the wide range of readers who have read it. And it really has reached a whole lot of people who don't normally read um, books of this size and technicality about a subject like the Gospels. Um, it's a book where, I mean, it, it is a demanding book. I couldn't, I couldn't sort of attempt to do what I'm doing in the book uh, without some stuff that really needs 
careful attention and, and, and so forth. Um, I did try to write it uh, as intelligibly as I could for a non-specialist reader. So one of the claims that I, I mentioned earlier that you make at the end... The end of form criticism, death of form criticism. That's right. You say that form criticism is, is dead, and the chapter title is Confirmed, the Death of Form Criticism. So it's a very confident statement, and, and I, I wonder what you would say your reasons are for such confidence that form criticism is dead, and, and in some ways this book kind of uh, helped, it, helped it on its way. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I think helped it on its way is important because um, quite a lot of people have made arguments against form criticism, um, but they have been, as it were, piecemeal criti criticisms. And usually people say, well, the form critics got some things right, but they were wrong about this. And what was really interesting, I think, was some of the um, responses to the first edition um, by people who um, were, were happy to admit that some of the, the arguments of the form critics um, have, have proved uh, not, to be, not to be reliable. Um, for example, their view of how old tradition works. Most people, I think, see that they got that wrong. Um, the idea that there were laws of tradition by which you could sort of work back to the original form of a tradition. Um, people generally agree that these things just haven't survived criticism. Um, but there's a strong tendency, I think, for people reacting to a book like mine to say that I'm throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But then if you look at what they say the form critics did, which is of enduring value, um, it seems to me to be quite trivial, actually. I mean, the form critics were called form critics because they classified the gospel stories and sayings into certain forms. So the form of a miracle story, the form of a controversy story. Um, but really, we didn't need the form critics to tell us that. I mean, everybody recognizes that there are miracle stories, for example, and they did it a bit more systematically than, than most people do. But um, it wasn't the essence of what they were arguing. Um, it was just a starting point from which they argued a case about how, um, the, how the traditions were enshrined in these forms and passed on and, and, and so forth. So simply to say that the form critics helped us to see that there are these and those forms of, um, of story or whatever um, is, is really not vindicating the form critics. It's, uh, it's too obvious and it was not the main point they were making. So I, I think the, the fact that some critics of my book, thinking that they're defending form criticism, actually fall back onto something that wasn't really the main point of the form critics' uh, arguments is, is, is quite revealing. And one major critic of my book, I mean, the, the, the person I can say really, really hated the book, um, uh, his examples of form criticism were actually not examples of form criticism at all. Um, they were examples of the evangelists themselves being creative writers um, and uh, composing accounts that were not historical, but that's not—that's nothing to do with what the form critics were arguing. Um, that, that's a quite different, um, different approach. So, I think the response to my book has itself confirmed the death of form criticism. I mean, the other thing that's been happening, more as it were, between the first edition and the second, is that quite a lot of people have been engaged in critiquing the so-called tests of authenticity, uh, the criteria of authenticity. And these were not from the form critics themselves, but 
Um, if you accept the form critical view, how do you assess these individual units of tradition as to reliable or not? And that's where a set of criteria called the formula of uh, the, the criteria of authenticity were proposed, and a lot of historical Jesus work has worked with these um, criteria of authenticity. And I think there have been some strong and uh, very persuasive attacks on those criteria of authenticity recently, and, and that is also part of the death of that whole way of approaching things. So, for the last question, I, I want to I want to go to something that you an idea that you bring up at the beginning of the book and then come back to at the, at the very end. And, and that's um, what, or more particularly who, you call the Jesus of testimony. Yes. I mean, basically, I'm saying that that old dichotomy between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith um, can be laid aside. Um, and again, this goes back to around the time of the form critics. Um, and the idea is that you know, there's one way of approaching Jesus, which is the historian's way, and you come out with a historian's bit. The other is the way of faith, Christ who's, um, who's presented to us by the Gospels and by the Church and in whom Christians believe. Um, the problem with that, one of the problems with that dichotomy is that it doesn't sufficiently recognize that all history embodies interpretation. So testimony as a category of historical document, historical material, um, as we said earlier, um, it's um, testimony from people who are involved in the events, who are affected by the events, who want to say something about what the events mean. In this particular case, the, the meaning of the events they thought was of world-shattering importance. Um, but if you could get back to a Jesus who was, as it were, uninterpreted, in the first case, I think such a Jesus would be not very interesting. I mean, you might be able to say certain things about Jesus. He was put to death on a cross by the Romans. You know, one could say that. Um, but actually, when people write their accounts of the historical Jesus, they are interpreting Jesus. And what we're really getting, instead of Jesus according to Mark, or Jesus according to John, or Jesus according to Luke, we are getting Jesus according to Dominic Crossan, or Jesus according to um, Bart Ehrman, or you know, any number of people who have written about the historical Jesus. Therefore, I'm suggesting that the Jesus of testimony is the Jesus the historical evidence that we have gives us, that is, the Jesus the four Gospels gives us. And that Jesus is, is the Jesus in whom the church has believed. Um, and this notion of testimony, because it embodies both fact and interpretation, fact and interpretation are inextricable in testimony, um, it's the right sort of category for doing historical work, because that's the nature of the documents we've got. But it's also the right sort of category for doing theological work, um, because Christian belief is interested in what, what does Jesus mean? What's his significance? And what are the people who are closest to, to him telling us that he meant? Um, so that's the Jesus of Testament, the Jesus that we find in the four Gospels. Richard Bauckham, thank you so much for joining us on the Erdcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Richard Bauckham is Professor Emeritus of New Testament Studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and Senior Scholar at Ridley Hall, Cambridge. His book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is out in a new second edition. And don't forget, you can order the book at 30% off when you use the code TESTIMONY in the Erdword store. Thanks for listening to the Erdcast. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, make sure to leave us a good review. This will be the last episode of the Erdcast, at least for a while. Thanks for listening, and as always, read good books and show some love to the people who make them. Thank you.